Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, alongside soccer journalist Sam Griswold and the mighty might of the Middlebury midfield, Grail Hallett. Say that three times fast. Over the Ball is brought to you by Soccer America and by Ticket IQ. Today on OTB, we discuss lots. Believe it or not, there's no soccer being played at this time, but there is still plenty of, uh, of soccer news out there. Possible opening of play in Europe, player salary reductions, some more FIFA officials indicted. Oh, what a surprise. They're accused of bribing uh, uh, FIFA officials from Russia and Qatar. Uh, that's fake news if it's coming from Russia, but the tiny little country of Qatar with all uh, that little tiny country with all that money, why not give them a cup? right out of the goodness of your hearts. And today on OTB, how are the kids, the high school seniors? I mean, they've all had their 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 proms canceled, graduations canceled. It's it's horrible for them. Such strange times. But what is it like recruiting now? All these high school players trying to to pick where they're going to go to school or where not to go to school. Uh, what is, and what is recruiting like during this bizarre time in our nation's history? We have uh, as our guest today on OTB, Middlebury College coach Alex Elias. Uh, he's on the program today to discuss just just that, you know, what is he doing? to help players, potential players, make their decisions um, when you can't see them play. So we'll be talking to, to Coach about that. And also we're going to talk to him a little bit about the split college season that's been proposed for Division One programs. I'm really interested to see what he has to say about that. Uh, as an SCAC school, they have some rig, uh, sort of tough academic standards, but also the amount of times you can let players practice. Does he believe it's a good idea to split the seasons in D1? And will there be a tri- trickle-down effect to the DT programs as well. So, uh, guys, Sam, Grail, a lot to go over today. Uh, but oh, yeah. before we get to Alex and all, uh, what are you over this morning on OTB? Yeah, I'm going to go with, and I know this might not be a popular take, but I'm kind of over all this news about bribery and all the effort and time and <laughs> money that's gone into trying to track these people down and prosecute them. Uh, I think it's time to let it go. The World Cup's not leaving Qatar. It already happened in Russia. I don't see what good can come out of it at this point. Um, And to me, it also speaks a little bit to the overall naivete of American soccer, where I just feel like we don't understand how things are done in the rest of the world. And we try to do things in a squeaky clean way. Um, And yeah, I just think it's time to get over it. So, so Sam, under that, you would think that uh, we shouldn't hunt down former Nazis. Because it was a long time ago. <laughs> no, no, hey, look, no, that's quite a jump. But I, I think this, uh, they broke the law. I think with one thing with FIFA, everyone knew they were corrupt. And I said this years ago, even when I was back on Sirius XMFC, where I said, there's going to be one country that has the ability to take them down, and it would be the United States. Yes, certainly Brazil's corrupt and Spain's corrupt. And Italy, you've lived there. You've seen how corrupt everyone is. But you break the law, you break the law. I think... You know, I actually have more respect for Sunil Galati because I don't know how he swam with the Sharks for so long and sort of was able to keep one foot in each canoe. No. So anyway, that's mine. All right. Sorry to comment on you. And sorry about that. Sorry about the Nazi reference. Yeah, I understand that. But, um, you know, at the same time, I think a lot of these same people are very happy to watch, you know, PSG, Man City play and support those teams that are, you know, backed by certainly less than you know, above board means. So right. I, I don't know. I think there's just some hypocrisy going on. 
Yeah. Oh, there's plenty of hypocrisy going on. Um, speaking of hypocrisy, Grail. I'm, I'm over a lot of things. Uh, I was actually <laughs> going to go down that trail, same similar trail, but I'm going to shift gears. I'm going to say that I am over Premier League clubs trying to game the system. And what I yeah. mean by that is uh, word leaked out that Liverpool had uh, was going to access the uh, UK um, coronavirus job retention fund. And uh, that was not in the spirit of why it was set up. And word leaked out prior to them making announcement. And the you-know-what hit the fan. And Liverpool ended up coming out of this looking really, really bad. So, again, I think that the the clubs have to be very careful. I know they're under uh, duress, but um, nobody's looking to bail out all the clubs in the Premier League. I can tell you that. Well, look, these millionaires and billionaires are millionaires and billionaires for a reason. They, uh, they work the system. So, you know, you look at, uh, um, you know, a lot of these stadiums, even domestically in our country, the, the state or the ta- town or the city subsidize the building of these, uh, these stadiums for billionaire owners so that the taxpayers get the burden and they get the, it's a sort of, yeah, this uh, privatized profits and socialized losses and investments. Sometimes it's just sort of absurd. And, you know, my, my beef, what I'm over, it's kind of touching on what both of you guys said. It's just basically, it's interesting how zealous certain people are about getting soccer back on. It's almost Mm -hmm. like Trump trying to open up the country again by Easter when all science and all health things say we have bigger fish to fry right now and people's lives, you're going to cost people's lives there. So I think this whole talk about soccer, during this yeah. time, when we have a, a global pandemic and people are dying and decisions that are made will affect people. Here we've talked about uh, on, on OTB, the, the Italian game that was played, the amount of players that were infected. Now, before that time, everybody was talking about, oh, just the fans. Uh, we won't have any fans. Well, the players are, are people living in this world and they go out into their communities. So I think people have to put, uh, we love our game. We love soccer. And yeah, we, we've gone through withdrawals, not being able to watch games every day, but let's put it in perspective, people. Exactly. And, um, you know, they're, they're searching for stories and pressuring. Everybody's getting pressured to start to play again. And it's just not the time yet. So that's what I've my been, beef is. I've, funny, I've been pleasantly surprised by my ability to shut it off, frankly. I, I, yeah. I love soccer as much as you and Sam, but so many more things are important. And, and it's just all about perspective. And, and it will come back when it's meant to come back. Right. So, uh, so, Sam, talk to us a little bit about what's going on globally. Some teams, some countries are sort of flirting with coming back. What, what have you found out? Yeah, well, it looks like the Bundesliga is going to be the first league to come back. I mean, this is, you know, what they're hoping for anyway. Um, mm-hmm. Teams in Bundesliga 1 and 2 have, uh, you know, returned to training this week. Um, the chief executive... Uh, said that plans were in place for them to return to play uh, by the beginning of May. Um, And that would be, you know, before anyone, obviously. And well, so, so they're a little ahead of us though, right. With this whole pandemic, it seems like they they did a much better job, a little more under control. Yeah. Um, And, you know, under that schedule, they would finish by the end of June, which is, you know, not quite the normal schedule, but almost the normal schedule. Closer. closer. Um, And they're led by a scientist, Andrea Merkel. So apparently science, actually plays into the equation. Um, planning to play, uh, they're planning to play, you know, across all the, the stadiums, across the two leagues. Um, I say that because there have been a couple other initiatives pushed in places like Italy and Spain to essentially quarantine, you know, entire leagues in a certain region or area and have them play, 
you know, just around, for example, in Italy, they want to do it in Rome, um, have all the 20 teams down there. There's a bunch of stadiums or even smaller clubs and have them, you know, finish out the season there. Uh, I yeah, know that, that's what I heard. They said, have everybody, everybody go to Rome yeah. around the city, play games without fans, fans. Yeah. Uh, in a closely monitored situation. And th- what that speaks to, it sounds like the players want their money and they got to play those games. Well, and they want to broadcast the games. It's yeah. uh, well, remember a lot of it's about the TV broadcasts and and uh, making the networks whole, so that they're not on the hook to pay them back money for games that weren't broadcast. So, and what are the odds that all those teams go to Rome and play in those games without uh, people in the stadiums, and someone gets sick? I, I think it's very slim. It's you know the NHL is talking about doing a similar thing in either North or South Dakota. Uh, because it's been less impacted and, and bringing teams in and playing just rotating games in that area. And again, to me as a sports fan, that's not the spirit in which sports are meant to be played. That's me. I, I just, I would rather wait longer and have fans in the stands and return in a very safe environment. I agree. I mean, I think the worst possible thing is that one of these plans gets put into place. Like you're saying, Kevin, someone gets sick and then it all gets shut down again. And then, mm-hmm. you know, all of a sudden next year is under threat too. I mean, I, I yeah, I, I don't understand the drive to want to finish these things in such a strange and conditioned way, you know? Uh, I mean, yeah. Well, like, Grail, this is right up your alley because this is broadcast rights and sponsorship rights, and that's where all the money is generated. And, and speaking of the money, you know, in the EPL, uh, the EPL clubs proposed that their, their players take a 30% salary cut. Players rejected the salary uh, cut proposal because they thought it would only benefit the owners. Do you, do you think that's Yeah, uh, there's true? no it, – it's kind of like the, uh, the stimulus package and not knowing where the money is going, right? I mean, that's the biggest outcry of, of that. It's the same thing as – okay, if we as players take a 30% salary cut, we want to make sure that that goes to, um, you know, non-playing staff, um, the people right. that need it the most, the, 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 women, the women that make the tea, the person that cleans out the locker, that, you know, every club probably has multiple hundreds of employees who are doing the work behind the scenes. Yeah. And money is also... No, just gonna, yeah. It's, go ahead, Sam. Sorry, just going to say that money is also taxed, their salary money. So yes. it, it's also getting put back into the national health system. Yeah. Right. But, you know, look, look, this is, was, was going to be my beef uh, this morning when we just got to air our beef there. But, well, you know, one of the things, look, I've gone, I've left my house twice in three weeks uh, because of the isolation, right, and the quarantining. Um, and when I go there, I have the mask on, I, I'm putting glasses on, I have gloves on, I'm trying to just be responsible, and I'm just going out for food. But when I get there... Uh, there are people working at the supermarket who have various forms of stuff on, maybe a mask, maybe not. They're making minimum wage. They have no health insurance. Um, and they're, risk- they're on the front lines of this, of this, uh, uh, this pandemic. And mm-hmm. it, it seems unfair. So when you start talking about um, write-offs and tax breaks and right. kickbacks, it's like it just seems, again, so foolish, so foolish to me yeah. that uh, we're not all in this together, it seems. And one of the interesting things, too, Flinty, is uh, there was a great story by Matt Slater in The Athletic that basically pointed out the fact that uh, in, in the best of times, a lot of clubs in the Premier League had finances that were somewhat shaky. And now with this, uh, this, you know, this situation with uh, COVID-19 exploding, 
Um, there are, I think, around 18, or excuse me, around eight clubs of the 20 clubs that are actually on sound financial footing. How many? 18 of eight, the 20? Eight. Oh, eight of the 20. Eight of the 20 are basically in the black. Okay. Wow. The other 12 clubs are in the red. They're operating on razor thin margins. So again, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's going to recast everything. I think once we come out of the back end of this, whether or not it's the Premier League or Syria or La Liga or whatever, you, you will have some clubs that go under. And, yes. and don't come back. The hope would be that this leads to some sort of financial, you know, restrictions. I mean, you know, maybe fair, FIFA, well, sorry, financial fair play gets a little stricter, um, you know, to prevent something like this from happening in the future. But I, another thing I find interesting that, you know, a lot of people aren't talking about, we're focusing on the Premier League, the Serie A, whatever, you know, this, the, the precedent that's set by these top leagues, you know, will naturally be applied further down. And, you know, you get far enough down the ladder, there's guys that, you know, need their paycheck to, to pay their rent, yeah. you know, get groceries every week. So I think, you know, those are really the people, players-wise, that are really in trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I think, again, we're talking about why are these people making these rash and foolish sort of proposals prematurely? Well, follow the money. And it's not just on a club level, but as you're talking about, Sam, you're talking way down. These are people, how they make their living. I, I didn't make much playing ball, but I needed my money yeah. Uh, yeah. every every month, you know, really badly. Like, what is it? Uh, will the EPL be on the hook to pay back some of that, uh, you know, 762 million pounds? Uh, yeah. Will they have to pay it back to broadcasters? Well, and, that's, you know, why they're, that's why they're agitating to play matches, Flinny, in empty stadiums. They just want to broadcast the matches, frankly, so that they, they're not on the hook for that. Right. And, and then you're talking about, uh, you know, running a business, which is a club, basically, you know, a lot of these fan, the fan base gets on owners uh, about not spending money. So if they're fiscally yeah. responsible, they hear from the fan base because they're not pulling in all these high priced players. You look at Barcelona's in a little bit of trouble just because they, you know, uh, with Coutinho and, and um, you know, it's, it's sort of uh, you make a couple of bad deals, you overextend yourself. It's almost like with Wall Street here, it's always good times. It's always been an up market. As soon as it was down, people were like, hey, what's going on? Well, that's the nature of the business. So a lot of these owners who perhaps aren't on solid financial footing or are on solid financial footing because of their financial decisions are criticized when the times are good. Now times are bad. And like you're saying, Grail, more clubs are in trouble than aren't. Well, you know the old adage, nobody fixes a roof on a sunny day. I mean, nobody is thinking, no, very few of these clubs thought ahead to what the bad circumstances could be. And again, it's hard to have a crystal ball or anything, but it's just exposed them for being very fragile financially. I think, you know, the one good thing that FIFA has said they'll do is they will allow the various leagues around the globe to determine how they want to end their seasons. Right. So FIFA's not saying you have to do it a certain way. So Serie A can do it one way, Premier League can do it another way, whatever it is, and FIFA's not going to get in the middle of that, which I think is good because that would just be that, – that, to me, that's really not their place, to be honest with you. Right, right. Do, do, guys, do you, you know any specific teams that are in dire financial straits that will not – Well, I just – you know, I just – Did they mention the- any? Well, they, you know, honestly, you look at the top eight and they, and they have numbers that are plus numbers, you know, they're, they're in the black and then everybody below that's, you know, in the red essentially. Now it doesn't mean because you're, you're more money's going out that's coming in that the club's going to fold, 
but it certainly means that some of those clubs in the bottom, you know, bottom four to six are, could be very shaky. And then of course, if you go to the championship league, which was one league below the premier league, you know, and then keep going down. Like Sam was saying, if you keep descending further down, again, you could have dozens and dozens of neighborhood clubs. The great thing about Germany, Sam, is that they're really publicly funded teams. A Mm -hmm. lot of those teams are supported by and owned essentially by the public. Yeah. And there's a real advantage to that. Yeah. Sorry, I I love the German system. And I think it's, you know, proving right now to be the most sustainable and, you know, as an alternative to, you know, billionaires from wherever showing up. I agree. I I think it's a much, you know, nicer... Wait. And both sides have been criticized for that, you know, like, hey, my, you know, uh, the, the wealthy Russian oligarch owner uh, can bring in all these players. And then um, you see what what happens here with something like this. Uh, people are uh, didn't England have most of their teams were owned by the public uh, for a long time. And then they were sort of sort of squeezed out. Is that yeah, true? Maybe, I mean, maybe back in the day, I, I've, I've always felt like they've had ownership. And then obviously in the 90s, when Abramovich came in. Um, then uh, the Middle Eastern money came in and you had glazers, me- me- yeah, mega wealthy owners, which really kind of separated the haves from the have nots. I mean, there were, right. you know, there were always clubs, the, the Man United's and Liverpool's that were bigger clubs, but, uh, but now just with the money that's being pumped into the man cities of the world, it just set the separation is so much greater. You know, as usual, Sam Grill always mentions the EPL. But look, the EPL is high profile, a lot of money. What I know there. best. It's what I know. And best. What I know best. Um, it, but there's a lot of money there. We're not seeing as much Syria A on television. Do you know anything about their financial shape? Are they okay? Are you know? It's it seems like they've been diminished over the last decade or so. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a similar situation. You know, you have a lot more foreign owners have come in in recent years, especially at the big clubs. Um, you know, the players were, I think, a little quicker to reach an agreement on pay cuts, um, but it hasn't been. You know, it's been mostly club by club. It hasn't been like a league mandate at this point. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I think clubs there are facing, you know, a lot of the same issues. Um, right. So right. I, I, I certainly don't think they're in any better shape. So interesting because no matter what league it is, you, you spend more money, you get better players, uh, you make more money maybe because you, you're on television more. But uh, now the other teams have a tough time keeping up. Uh, you know, it's the have and the have nots, and that's not very, very good for a, for a healthy league. Does it speak to MLS being centrally uh, sort of owned? I don't know. I don't know if, you know, if that's the way to go either, but, uh, but this is some interesting stuff. All right. So obviously an interesting time in the world with this pandemic and how is that affecting soccer and recruiting? I mean, uh, you know, my daughter, they're talking about her not even going back to college in the fall. Um, you did, a lot of these teams didn't have their spring season. A lot of, High school seniors, as I mentioned in the at the opening here, that, that they're not going to their proms. They're not, uh, you know, graduations have been canceled. What is recruiting like, uh, you know, for a college coach right now? Uh, stick around. We're going to have Alex Elias on. He's the head coach of Middlebury College. He'll be talking to us about, uh, about what it's like out there. All right, you're listening to OTP. We'll be back. All right, our guest today on OTB was not only an All-American college soccer player in his 
uh, his own right. He was also part of a national championship team at Middlebury, the school where he now coaches for the last two years. He replaced the legendary head coach, Dave Sayward. Welcome back to OTB coach Alex Elias. How are you, Alex? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, guys. Great to be hope here. You're, uh, hope you're getting through this crazy time. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, it's a crazy time for the country, for the, for the world, really. Um, so, you know, I, we mentioned this in the opening. Soccer becomes very small in the scope of things. But, look, it's, it's our world. And for you especially, this must be a very difficult time. What is it like out there right now? Because these, these high school kids, they're, they're having their proms canceled, their graduations canceled. I mean, they're picking their schools. You're picking them. What's the recruiting process like right now? What are you guys going through? Yeah, from a recruiting standpoint, I think we were we were fortunate to do a lot of recruiting on the front end. So from last summer through February, you know, we, we saw a lot of very talented student athletes at a lot of different events and have had a lot of contact with them going into this period. So it's not as though we're now struggling to find the players that we want. It's how do we connect with them consistently, get to know them more uh, over the phone, watching clips, watching highlights, uh, because we just don't know how many opportunities we will have to watch them play on the field once we all return to some, some normalcy here. So it's how do we get as many data points as we can on them in the meantime? Uh, you know, talking more with high school coaches, club coaches, speaking with these students more on the phone, asking them more questions, uh, speaking with their families. So. And we can be proactive about it, but it's in a just a different way and in a less predictable way necessarily than in a normal year. You also have the 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 added difficulty of the, the school that you're at academically is quite intense. Um, how does that factor in as well? Do you, do you continue to to monitor their scholastic achievements and, and everything during the school year? Absolutely. Yeah, we you know we see so many good players who are very interested in a place like Middlebury. Um, academically, we need very, very strong, capable student athletes because the level of rigor here is obviously very high at Middlebury as it is with our peer institutions. Um, so reinforcing with students right now, yes, we understand there's a lot of challenges out there and so much is unpredictable, but if you can, can you walk into studies? Can you, you know, finish this semester? as well as you possibly can, can you still trust yourself in, in creating a really rigorous senior year class schedule? Because all of those things factor in significantly with our ability to bring them into our program. Um, standardized testing is another big one because so many tests have been canceled. Um, students just don't know when they'll be able to take, whether it's the SAT or the ACT. Fortunately, a lot of schools, institutions have made the decision to go test optional um, in this recruiting cycle or several cycles to enable students who did not have the chance to take tests ahead of time to still have a really good chance of. Uh, I would have loved that, Alex. If, uh, if, if I could have thrown out the SATs, I would have gotten into Middlebury. Hey, but so who, who do you actually compete against? I know within your region, you know, this, the, the NESCAC schools you have, but I, I also think that with your rigorous academics, uh, you know, Parents must know that their kids get to play at a highly competitive level, but they also get a great education. Do you compete with Ivy League schools, basically, for these students? Absolutely. I would say we compete with a lot of the Ivy Leagues, a lot of great schools, um, whether it's you know, trying to get players from Stanford or some of the ACCs, or students looking to go um, other NESCAC schools, some of the Patriot League schools. So mostly Division One schools we're competing against, but there's also a handful of obviously very strong academic 
and soccer in Division three schools. What's the question? What's the question? How do you answer this? You know, uh, our buddy, all of our friend Mike Noonan, the head coach at Clemson, he said a lot of these kids and a lot of the parents, especially, have D one goggles on. Like they just think right. they've got to play D one. And and those of us who played at every level realize that that's not just the only answer, and and it's not for everyone. But to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So for us, you know, if a player is saying their absolute goal is to be you know, a professional soccer player, have a long soccer career, we don't want to you know, manipulate the conversation to convince them to still say, hey, Middlebury is the best option for you to be a soccer pro. You know, we, we believe, have there been some players to go abroad and play after school? Yes. You know, have there been some players to receive some professional tryouts? Yes. But the majority of the, re- the players that will come in here and the, the main reason to come to a school like this would be to say, you know, play very high-level soccer with a lot of players and teammates who had Division I offers, um, get a fantastic education, be plugged into this incredible alumni network to really give you so many options after school professionally that might not have to do directly with playing the game, but it could be in coaching. Obviously, our coaching tree from Coach Sayward all the way down is, is fantastic. It can be coaching the youth game. It can still be around the game of soccer. Um, but so many of our, our players just have endless choice in the professional world after graduating from here, and our network is incredible. Um, so that's, that's part of the cell, and, and just getting to know what these students' values are and their, their goals for after school is a big part of the process, obviously. Yeah, Alex, this is Grail. So how do you draw that line between aggressively recruiting and being hyper-conscious of the situation that we find ourselves in and the sensitivities, the psychological impact, et cetera? Absolutely. So I would say we're on the phone significantly more with significantly more students than in a normal recruiting cycle. And, you know, part of that is, is out of self-interest where we want to be you know, recruiting the same number of, of players and the same level of player, but it's also to try to give some clarity to students and their families and club coaches and high school coaches to say, okay, there is obviously a panic around high schoolers at this time, especially high school juniors to say, did this completely derail my recruiting process? Do I have any chance of going to schools like a middle barrier, like the Ivies, as you mentioned? And it's trying to give them perspective on, hey, everything's up in the air for us now too. What are the things that you can control as a student? Um, and mostly it's you know, staying healthy, keeping your academics up, you know, emerging from this thing, physically healthy, mentally healthy, refreshed, so that if we do have a pretty intense month or two months this summer of recruiting, you're not already burnt out when you get there. Um, so it's just trying to answer families and students questions around that and provide them some guidance on how to be healthy when you come out of this thing to give yourself a chance of seeing the schools you want to see and performing at your best and, and staying in communication with, with coaches during this time, what we want to see, what we don't want to see, uh, what's helpful, what's not. Yeah. And have you sensed a different type of anxiety at all coming through? Yes, I have. Um, in general, I would say, it's typically surrounds when can we get back to it? Students don't know if it's, you know, they're going to be back on the fields playing in front of college coaches. What early June, July, is it, is it going to have to wait until later in the year for that? Just, there are so many, so many questions, so few answers right now, a lot of speculation. So there's the soccer piece of it. There's also, I was scheduled to take my SAT several days before all, everything was canceled. How do I do that? Do I not have a chance now of going to all these high-level academic schools? What if I can only take the test once? So I would say so many questions to which a lot of us don't necessarily have the answers, which potentially provides more anxiety for, for students. So 
you know, it's a lot of longer phone calls, speaking with families and parents about what does that look like? You know, what, how could the timelines potentially be different this year compared to years past? And it's just trying to be generous with our time too, to answer some of those questions um, more comprehensively than, than in the past when we don't necessarily have the exact answer or, or total clarity around that. Alex, uh, this is Sam. Just, uh, I'm wondering how you're handling communication with your current players right now, how you guys are, I mean, like, quote, unquote, getting together for training and, you know, just staying in touch and being there for each Definitely. other. Definitely. Definitely. So I would say the majority of our time, almost all of our time outside of recruiting and more of our time um, than anything else is spent supporting our current players. So the returning players, uh, the incoming players who will join us this fall, and even the seniors that are no longer with us from a soccer standpoint, but obviously had their senior spring derailed and are looking for community and support and, and looking for answers where some jobs are up in the air. Um, you know, how do they navigate the last few months of their college experience? And we were such a fundamental part of their, their first three and a half years that we don't want to just say, okay, now we're focusing on high school juniors. Good luck navigating this on your own. Um, you know, so they're, they're a part of what we're trying to, to figure out. How do we support creatively support these guys? Uh, so from a current returning player standpoint, we're speaking with our captains several times a week, uh, Zoom calls, FaceTime, just to try to make sure we have our finger on the pulse of how are the players doing? What are themes that are emerging from? You know, how, is, how is school going? How are their lifts going? You know, how are they staying fit? What are their challenges? You know, what's cropping up in a, another area of their life that's unexpected that we can somehow uh, you know, support or, or provide some guidance on? So. You know, our captains are kind of liaisons to the rest of the group from a consistent several time a week standpoint. We're also connecting with a lot of our players individually or in small groups, uh, mostly on the phone, not necessarily making them get on a Zoom call because they're on Zoom for their classes a lot throughout the day. So, uh, but it's just trying to make sure they know we're here to support them. And it's not, the goal is not to have them emerge from this period, a significantly better soccer player necessarily. Mm -hmm. It's how can they emerge here feeling supported, feeling like they still have a really great community, um, you know, rehabbing injuries if they have them, still making gains on their, their academics, their strength, their fitness, um, you know, their, their trust in their teammates, et cetera. But it's, those are the main goals as opposed to, okay, you have to watch you know, four Premier League games, archive games a week and report. We can't even do that given our league's guidelines. So we cannot mandate any type of athletically related activities. Um, so in some ways, a NESCAC coach's job is not as completely different in, as in a normal year as some other college coaches jobs would be because most of our support in the off season is support around everything but soccer. But uh, talk about that a little bit, Alex, because I think, you know, what you're talking about now is about the, the countless hats that a college coach wears, uh, whether it's psychiatrist and psychologist and uh, academic advisor and coach, you know, sometimes comes last. But, you know, the, the spring is a really important time um, in the development of a team for the fall. I mean, a lot of guys Absolutely. come out of the woodwork. You, you, they surprise you. They work hard over the winter uh, individually. Um, it's really when you as a coach start to uh, your, your ideas start to gel about what, what's my fall going to look like. Um, mm -hmm. how, how are you dealing with that and, and, and how are players dealing with that? And, and how is the NESCAC different than, than other leagues, you think, in that respect? Yep. So the NESCAC probably has the most restrictive rules 
regarding what a coach can do with players in the non-traditional season. So we are not allowed to do athletically related activities with our players outside of our traditional fall season. Um, that said, you know, they, it puts a lot of onus on the players, on the captains to say, what are our goals? Obviously at Middlebury, our goal is to be the best team in the country for our level in division three. And, and we're not there right now. So they know if they only work from late August through December and then take the rest of the time off, we're probably not going to accomplish yeah, all that we want. Happening, so, right? But they have plenty of resources with strength and conditioning coaches here at the college, uh, yoga instructors here at the college who have a big role in what we do in season. They, you know, the players can do yoga in the off season. Um, but it's, it's a lot of captain driven. Okay. How do we get closer as a team? How do we build trust amongst our teammates? Uh, how do we stay you know, focused when we have so much work? year round how do we still make gains uh on the soccer and strength and conditioning front in the off season so that's obviously a bit trickier now than it is in a normal year where most of our players don't have access to a gym or weights some students in, in cities or in some areas don't really have much outdoor space in order to to be active and and you know, keep their cardiovascular capacity up and growing so we have tried to provide resources to say, okay, no matter where you're living, no matter you know, what your home situation's like, you can still achieve these goals with you know, body weight workouts, a variety of different cardio workouts. Um, if you do have access to a gym in your basement, what you can be doing. So, right. um, and then a lot of that has to do with, with the mental health space too. Of you're sitting around your house basically 24 hours a day. Uh, you have no way to blow off steam like you normally do with, classmates, teammates, contemporaries, enjoying the college lifestyle. So, okay, how do we not burn you out between rigorous academics and then trying to keep your fitness up and then... And, and not driving your parents crazy. Uh, <laughs> exactly. 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 So, <laughs> yeah. Grail? Yeah. yeah, Alex, given the unique circumstances, I'm just curious, has this actually drawn you and your fellow NESCAC coaches closer together? Have you guys, are you sharing more information? Just describe that dynamic a little bit. Yeah, so I would say in general, we have a pretty collegial group of coaches in the NESCAC. Um, you know, we've been, well, as a player, I played against some of these, these coaches. So I've known them for a long time throughout my recruiting, playing, now coaching phases of life. Um, We've been in touch a bit, not as much as I think we probably will in the upcoming weeks. I would say the majority of, of brainstorming and sharing best practice for us has been among our coaches at Middlebury. So it's a lot of sharing, okay, what's working, what's not, what are our players needing, um, and just really sharing throughout our department. Uh, so that's been very helpful. We have weekly calls now to say, okay, what's a topic we want to chat about? And then just opening the floor to say, you know, what has someone else thought of that's helping their student athletes that I haven't thought of and trying to figure out how we implement that in the group. Uh, mm -hmm. Is there more room for that in the league? Probably. And I would think and hope that that, that will emerge in the upcoming weeks. Let's, uh, let's take a little broader view here, Alex, as well. Um, you know, because you do have certain restrictions with NESCAC. Um, they get a lot of bang for their buck to go to a, unit, a school like yours. Um, there's a big move afoot uh, with Sasha down in Maryland, you know, about trying right. to do the split d1 season uh mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on that what are your feelings on that yeah you know i don't have as informed an opinion as some of the the coaches who it would affect more you know i don't believe mm -hmm. if it did trickle down to our level i think it would take some time for that uh, from a player development standpoint i think it would be very beneficial 
uh, right. from you know preparing players to play at the next level. I think it would be very beneficial. It is one of the biggest challenges for us, and you know it's different for us than for some of these Division One coaches. But how do you continue to help players develop and support players in the spring season when there are so many restrictions? So you know, our players do better academically in the fall than they do in the spring in general. I believe they in, enjoy the support and the the daily, weekly contact with coaches in the fall more than they have access to in the spring. Yes, I'm in the office. There are just fewer organic ways to connect with me when they're not yeah. seeing me every day. And, and part of the reason they came to us is for the, for the coaches and the community and the support that we bring. So, but, but you know, Alex, look, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, when I was playing, D, you know, in a D1 experience, and the same as Middlebury. Now, two games a week, sometimes three. Um, and those midweek games were very difficult. You're on the road to Boston for me. It would be two, two and a half, three hours. Three, that's six hours out of your day. Then you play the game eight hours. It's, it's sort of, uh, you're under that as well. I mean, you play a couple games a week, right? And these are guys that a uh, pretty rigorous academic schedule. Um, it, it seems to me that not just Division One, but it seems like the sport through the NCAA's eyes is a little bit outdated, like that, that you know, you play uh, soccer or football, then basketball, hockey, or, you know, uh, baseball in the spring. It's, it's not that way in American sports anymore. And, and certainly with soccer, where you should be playing year round to develop the skill set. But, you know, what Sasha has sort of pushed and Mike Noonan has have pushed uh, and Dave Mazur is something like it, it's physically better for players. If you were preparing your, your guys for one game once a week on a Saturday, be more of, a, of an event, physically they'd be in better position. And also academically, they'd be in a better position. And after all, that's what the NCAA is supposed to be supporting. Yeah, I totally agree. I think in all those realms, it would be better for student athletes if we could spread games out in a way that's more conducive to our sport. Uh, physically, be better, better prepared. Academically, they would miss fewer classes. So I'm certainly in favor of it. Um, and I think at a really intense academic institution as well, Splitting seasons or having fewer midweek games, having to miss fewer classes is extremely conducive to the mission of what we're trying to do. So I would absolutely welcome it. And I, and I hope that moving forward, it's something that would eventually trickle down to, to our level as well. You know, you say academically rigorous, Middlebury. We, we got to kind of quantify that because Grail went there. So it couldn't be too, <laughs> couldn't be too rigorous academically. But really become so academically rigorous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah after he left, after he left. <laughs> I mean, on this subject, Alex, one of the things we talk about a lot on the, on the, the podcast is just the balance in sports and, or the lack of balance now. And the, the, the one thing I could see uh, as a positive about not having the split season is as a player, I actually always looked forward to kind of decompressing in the spring. Mm -hmm. It gave me a chance to just psychologically kind of, you know, disconnect a little bit and then come back and be really fired up for the next fall. I mean, do you see, you know, that side of the equation too? Yes. You know, for us, I got to live that more balanced you know, non-traditional season as well. I went abroad to New Zealand, learned to fly fish. Now I teach fly fishing at the college and it has definitely enriched my life and enriched my college experience. So, you know, there are definitely benefits to saying in the spring, you have a chance to explore things outside of the game. So would you have to sacrifice some of that potentially? You know, I believe some Ivy League schools I've heard still allow their students to go abroad if, if there's a student that really wants to go for a certain reason. So, from that standpoint, I don't know that it would prevent um, you know, kind of a cultivation of things outside of the game. 
-hmm. But if students do want to develop the most in the game of soccer and be supported the most by their coaching staffs year round, I, I do think the split season would be a good way to, to get yeah. it. Four yeah, years of college and I never got to go on spring break. So I'm wounded because of that. Yeah. Just, to, just to follow up to that, Alex, just quickly, I'm curious, how many of your players are dual sport athletes? How many of your uh, players play another sport in the spring? So currently zero. Um, okay. Back when we were playing, it tended to be a handful, four or five players mm -hmm. would be playing, whether it was lacrosse, um, hockey, a couple of skiers in the group who were very talented in a secondary sport as well. Now, for I think a multitude of reasons, everyone currently in the squad is, is just, just soccer. It's all more specialized now. So. Yeah, do you dissuade is, them yeah. from doing that? I wouldn't, no. I think okay. if, if there was a student who was very passionate about another sport um, and was good enough to contribute to their, a team in the college uh, in that sport, I would definitely be open to it. Some of our best players have been two-sport guys. Our current assistant, Greg Conrad, was um, an All-American for us and played ice hockey for four years here and was, was a big value add to that team. So, so there could be some potential All-American fly fishermen on your squad. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, I, it, that is not athletically related, so I can take them out <laughs> of the river. So, yeah. Hey, let me ask you this. Uh, before we get going here, um, you know, one of the things you did, you know, talking about the unique experiences outside of just the game itself or the college experience, uh, is you went to Africa and uh, worked with, uh, you know, how soccer can promote uh, a better understanding of the spread of HIV AIDS. Do you see any correlation between what's uh, bad and what's going on now? I mean, from a health standpoint, I, I'm too ignorant in that to really speak about um, any yeah. connections, but I would say just, from, uh, just about uh, the power, just about the power of soccer or sport to sort of get a word out there. I know, you know, a friend of mine works with the native American um, uh, you know, reservations about getting them sports equipment because when you get sports equipment, they'll come to the area and you can educate them in other ways about, you know, uh, substance abuse and, and things that they can help them with. So sometimes sports can be a very powerful uh, conduit to sort of good information. I just didn't know if you Absolutely. had the experience. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that the thing coming out of, of that experience, you know, I live with uh, a teammate of mine from Middlebury and then an Amherst soccer player as well. We lived in Kimberley, South Africa for the year and, Basically, our job down there was to use soccer as a hook to get into local communities and um, you know, educate on the basics of HIV and AIDS and, and, and reduce stigma around the, the disease. So I guess I found coming out of that, soccer was such a huge, it was so empowering for us to be able to have a voice and to influence communities and, and build communities there that you know, I think that's something that we're you know, now it's up to us to say, okay, we are in a position where we can bring people together through the game and during this time of, of isolation. How do we creatively do that? How do we creatively problem solve the constantly changing environment that our players are in, our alumni are in, our incoming players are in? So, you know, I think it, it just kind of puts the onus on us to figure that out and use the game right. as, as a tool as a part of that. Hey, look, you know, another thing you and I have in common, common Alex, is that we both played for Dave Sayward. Uh, mm -hmm. what is your, uh, fondest memory or, or a funny story about Dave? He, he was a heck of a player in his own right. He, uh, he was, his touch stayed good up until the end. He, uh, yeah. you know, he's, he's been a great friend and a mentor for me for a long time. I've known him since I was very young. Um, favorite memory as a player. I think he, he was always just driving us to obviously get better as, as all coaches do. But in the, in the final game of our career, which fortunately for us was a, a national championship, um, with about 10 minutes to go, we're, we're bumping up against a, a great team and, and some very good players. And he's still saying, he goes, you see how that central midfielder 
just open the game up with that kind of pass. I need you to work on that. And it was you know, 10 minutes from the end of the season. <laughs> last minute of our flanker. It's like, all right, yeah, I'll work on that. I'm just trying That's to a it. coach. That's a coach. You're yeah. always coaching. So, and, uh, you know, the thing so. that – and the best coaches really uh, teach you how to knock a pass uh, in life, you know, to open things up. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, and he's, so, he's just been a mentor and, a you know, just a supporter for us for so long. Um, so, so much of what we do is still because of the way he conducted himself and, and the, the values that he had that he instilled in us. So Grail and I are fortunate to. And the great him. sense of humor, Alex. I mean, yeah. ne I mean, never, ever underestimate the power of a great sense of humor as a coach. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah and I generally, uh, wonderful man. And I generally don't like the English as an Irish kid. So, <laughs> but I, I, I will, uh, Alex, uh, it was great having you on OTP. Keep up the good work. Uh, you know, with the, all the great work that Dave Sayward did uh, with people, the amount of young men uh, that he, uh, sort of shaped you're doing that now so it's a really important work and, and definitely during these difficult times here uh, in this country Alex Elias uh, head coach of Middlebury College thanks for joining us on OTB thanks so much appreciate it guys All right, guys. Well, that was great. Uh, Alex is uh, is a good interview. Articulate. Uh, he is uh, he is bright. I don't know how you got into that that school, Grail. <laughs> I think they made a mistake with my application. They thought I was Grant Howard, not Grail. Tell you somebody Howard. else. Yeah. So uh, or or was Howell the third there? I would not um, have Island. a chance in hell of getting into that college right now. I, I couldn't get into UMass now either. Yeah, All these schools have yeah. gotten better as we've gotten out yeah. of there, but uh, it's almost like our careers get better as we get older. And Sam's and very quiet. So Sam obviously thinks he could have gotten into Wesleyan. No, so, I, I mean, I, I didn't get into Wesleyan officially. And then, uh, you know, something. Would you have to sleep you, with? You, you, you squatted? You, you squatted you, in you, a dorm? What were you doing? <laughs> almost. Uh, no, I, yeah, I fully agree. I would not have gotten in without soccer and probably wouldn't even get in today. And that was only 10 years ago. All right. So guys, uh, a few things we haven't touched upon. I just uh, a little bit about, um, you know, what's going on with these indictments and, you know, with the world cup, uh, Fox was indicted a little bit. Some of their, some of their executives, I guess, were part of this, uh, you know, we've had Bob Lee on the show and he was at ESPN at the time. And, and he had mentioned like, wow, it just out of the blue, FIFA just made this sort of decision to just extend the next World Cup to Fox. And it, it just seemed so odd. ESPN didn't yeah. even get a chance to bid on the games. And now it's sort of coming to fruition as to what exactly happened and the, and the people who were involved and, and a couple of Fox executives from South well, America. It yeah, it sounded like the walls were closing in on Fox. Mm -hmm. And their reaction to the walls closing in was to, I guess, to kind of mute or cover up the problem was to just kind of surreptitiously award the 2026 World Cup rights to Fox in a, in a no bid award. So in other words, ESPN, nobody else who would have been very interested mm -hmm. in bidding on that was allowed to. And it was just, you know, in the press, it was just like, oh, yeah, Fox uh, lands 2026 World Cup, and, and clearly they're kind of connecting that to the two Fox executives from Latin America um, who have been implicated in this Department of Justice thing. It, it's, it's like, this thing will never end. Don't you feel right, like right. guys like this thing? This just, goes, but, but, but this goes to Sam's point. Like, I understand this is going on forever. You know, it's, it's, it's like luggage. It's lasting forever. But I, I, I say, 
don't you want justice to come to people who do this, especially if there's an American connection? Sure that culturally there are different types of uh, levels of bribery uh, that happen in international business, but Sam, aren't you happy that, that if these two guys did something nefarious and for an American company that we, that we bring them to justice? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I can't yeah. argue with that. Okay. And well, Jack I like that. Warner, I that answer. It, it, it's, it's always good to see Jack Warner's wait, name wait. come up again because he's such an upstanding human being. Oh my God. Reminded of the level of just absurd corruption that right. goes on in FIFA. And by the way, this would make a great, you know, six part Netflix series, yeah. frankly. Somebody's going to do it, right? Because right, it's right, full right. of everything. Well, I would, would ESPN do it? Because then they'd be able to take on Fox. I don't know. And, and by the way, Sam, I love your answer. It reminds me of my daughter. I was sitting with my daughter. This is when I realized she was an adult and perhaps I was not. Someone asked her a question and she said, you know, uh, I really don't have enough information to, to make a, uh, an educated uh, comment on that. And I was like, wow. That sounds your father, so much like our president. I can't your father it. never said that. Your father, I just shoot from the hip, and I don't know what I'm talking about half the time. I'm so. going to counter that a little bit because, I mean, to be fair, it's a little harder to, you know, remove a World Cup from a country that spent however right. many years preparing for it than saying, like, okay, let's just go back and redo this bidding process and make it fair. Yeah. You know. Now, well, we now know, but Sam, we, under that, uh, let me get this point in. Under yeah. that – we could it could be taken away from fox if it was that's what i'm saying nefarious yeah right so i see your point well the the good news is sam that you know uh john christick who's a friend of uh, over the ball who was very instrumental in landing the 2026 bid in um us mexico and canada is as honest as the day is long so we know that that was not uh, that bid was not won through dubious means. So maybe yeah, but, we, but maybe, FIFA was exposed. I mean, like they, they, yeah. You know, so I'm by, just by saying maybe 2026 is the start right. of actually, you know, fair practices when it comes accountability. To accountability. Yes. yes. I think, yeah. uh, I think uh, Donald Trump should take over Johnny Infantino's job when he's president <laughs> of the United States, which would really help us. Hey, uh, so speaking of egos and, and uh, nefariousness, if that's a word, uh, jo- you wanted to talk about Mourinho a little bit. Jose yeah, Mourinho so, so this bit. is just classic. So Jose Mourinho got caught uh, coaching, um, I think it was, was it Dembele? It was, there were like two or there was one player in particular. I think it was, I think it was Dembele who, uh, who Mourinho has been all over because of, um, his lack of fitness. So Jose decided to take it upon himself to just have a private training session out in, um, it was in a, uh, it was called Hadley Common. And, uh, and of course, somebody saw it. And then yeah. they also saw two of the uh, other top Spurs fullbacks have been jogging together in close proximity. So there's been a, there was a huge outcry. And, of course, the public is like, do you guys live by the same set of rules that we do? And then Jose yeah. had to issue an apology. So classic. Well, you know, it's so funny. Like, Jose Mourinho and Dembele are going to be in a park somewhere. <laughs> uh, near Spurs Stadium, and no one knows who they are and don't recognize it. What idiots, my God. And by the way, head to toe in Spurs gear. So Mourinho didn't even have a fake mustache and maybe like some, you know, oversized sweats. He had on all Spurs gear. Well, you know the drill with when you get gear as a player, yeah. you pretty much, I, I, when I was getting gear, I had no other gear. It's all I had. And so I'd always wear the stuff that was given to me. So, uh, 
Um, all right, guys. Well, uh, good OTP. Lots to talk about, even though soccer's not uh, not happening globally as we deal with this pandemic. Uh, and I also want to, you know, uh, give a shout out, and not so much a shout out, but just uh, uh, the passing of a friend of of mine. One of my best friends passed this this past week. He was a frequent guest on Over the Ball. Uh, he was comedian Vic Henley, and uh, as I said, his uh, his spirit and his knowledge of everything was unbelievable. He uh, was a big his his brother was a college football player, and so he grew up around Auburn University going to the games. His brother was Terry Henley, uh, one of the leading rushers for a long, long time there. Uh, his, uh, some of his records were broken by Bo Jackson. Uh, that shows you how good the guy was. But uh, when I met Vic with this thick Alabama accent, and he was an Auburn guy and an Auburn football you know, uh, junkie, um, I thought, there's no way this guy knows anything about soccer. But he did. He knew a ton about it. Grail, we had him on Over the Ball when we were at Sirius. We had him oh, on Over the Ball when we were at, at ESPN. What a voice. What a great voice. What a great laugh. Great laugh. Great voice. The stories he had, my one in particular was when they were, they were doing the wave, when it was the U.S. Uh, no, the Germany versus England in England, <laughs> England. And Vic would tell the story on stage where they would do the wave. And the English fans would go, stand up if you won the war. Stand up if you won the war. And he said the whole section would do the wave. And when it got to the German section, nobody stood up. And then everybody would wave again when it got to the English section. Uh, and he, uh, he knew so much about music and sports and, and books. And just you, you just couldn't, you couldn't stump him on anything. And uh, was a dear friend of mine. And wherever he was, you, you had a good time. And... Uh, he has a, a new CD that just came out. It was number eight on uh, on Apple yesterday. He was the number uh, two uh, most searched word um, in Google search on Tuesday, right after uh, coronavirus. So uh, people knew who he was. Eight times he was nominated for Comedian of the Year. Um, he helped me out with the Nantucket Comedy Festival, which is a benefit for young kids, uh, a program called Stand Up and Learn. Um, help them with me. And I say to people, I started the comedy festival, but Vic Henley owned it because mm -hmm. he was like the social chairman out there. Loved working with the kids, raising money for that program. And uh, just a dear, dear friend. And I will miss him. I will miss him greatly. So uh, it was, a, it was a, an honor to have known him. All right, everybody. That's all the time we have on OTB today. I'd like to thank our guest, Alex Elias, and uh, of course, Braille Hallett and Sam Griswold and our sponsors, Ticket IQ and soccer america all right everyone let's uh let's hope for the best across this world as we battle this uh very odd odd time and stay the healthy boys. Yeah, stay healthy everyone stay isolated till we get through this uh e pluribus unum together we're one okay everybody we'll talk to you next time on otb